2007, September 26th. Lecture number six, daily and annual motions. Well, so far in describing what we see in the sky, we're, we're in this, this sort of answering this first question about astronomy. What is it? Describe it. And everything we're doing so far is trying to describe things that you can see in the sky without having to use a telescope or go up and, and sample it with a spacecraft or anything like that. It's all a very straightforward, stand outside and observe it kind of thing. Today, I want to now take where things are in the sky and add another dimension to it. And the dimension we're going to add now is motion. What we see in the night sky depends upon not only the time of day, but the time of the year. And we're going to see that that apparent daily and annual motion is a reflection of the motion of the Earth, both around its axis every day and as it orbits the sun. So we're going to add the, definition, add the dimension of motion here. We're going to, if you will, add the dimension of time. So the key ideas from today's slide, is today's uh, lecture, is we're going to talk about two basic topics, the daily motions and the annual motions. These are easily separable motions, which are caused by two separate things. The daily motions that we see is the rising in the east and setting of the west of all astronomical objects. And this turns out to simply be a reflection of the Earth's daily rotation around its north-south axis. This is going to lead us to a definition of the circumpolar stars. Those stars that, from your latitude, never rise nor set, but are always seen above your horizon. Now, in addition to the Earth rotating around its axis, the Earth is orbiting around the Sun once a year. And that produces a second set of apparent motions we refer to as the annual motions, those that play out over the course of a single year. So what we're going to see are motions which reflect the fact that we are on a planet which is orbiting the Sun. And these are going to, the key idea that comes out of the annual motions is we're going to meet the ecliptic. The ecliptic is the apparent path followed by the sun through the celestial sphere over the course of a year. And this is going to give us one of our principal definitions on the celestial sphere of four special locations where the sun is at two extreme locations, north and south on its motion, and when it crosses the celestial equator. The ecliptic is going to bring us up to the idea of the zodiacal constellations. These are the 12 constellations that lie along the ecliptic. And we're going to find that the definition of solstices and equinoxes is based on where the sun is along its annual path of the ecliptic. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to be talking about how things in the sky appear to move both on a daily basis and on, on an annual basis. So we're going to start out simple. And over the next couple of lectures, we're going to start cranking up some of the complexity, as well as talking about some of the implications of these motions for the things that we observe. Now, let's start with the best basic motion. Objects, if I stand outside and, and just simply look up, even during the daytime or the nighttime, any celestial object I see is going to appear to rise over my eastern horizon, climb to some maximum position above my horizon, some maximum altitude, and then it's going to appear to decline and set, eventually disappearing behind my western horizon. And that cycle of rising in the east and setting in the west repeats endlessly day after day, year after year. This is an example of what are called the daily motions. Now this type of motion that we're talking about is what we really want to be more specific, is apparent daily motion. It's not because the sun is actually moving around the earth or the stars are rotating around the center of the earth. 
It's actually a reflection of the fact that the Earth is rotating once a day every 24 hours around its axis. And this rotation has an eastward sense. So let me show you what I mean by that. We've got our big inflatable Earth globe here. Give you a little bit of familiar geography. There's the United States and South America. And the rotation poles are roughly where my fingers are holding the sphere up and down. You can tell which way the Earth is supposed to rotate by the fact that the sun will appear to rise over the eastern United States first and then over the western United States. The Earth rotates in such a way as to move eastward. So things in the east are in front, things in the west are behind. This is a common motion in the solar system. It turns out, and we're going to learn later on, that this is not an accident. This is a common motion within the solar system. This turns out to be an example of what's referred to as a right-hand rule rotation. Right-hand rule is very easy to remember. Take your right hand. Everyone, take your right hand. Make a thumbs up. Then take your fingers and kind of curl them in this direction. If you make your thumb the rotation axis and you have your fingers curling so your fingertips are leading the motion, that is a right-hand sense of rotation. So sure enough, there's the north pole of the Earth. I curl my fingers in this, um, of my right hand in this right-hand sense, and I get the right-hand sense of rotation. So if you ever want to know how something should be rotating on the Earth, what the appropriate direction is, simply apply that right-hand rule. We are going to occasionally find things which follow a left-hand rule. However, left-hand rule can also be viewed as a right-hand rule upside down. We're going to see that throughout the solar system. So what we're seeing is the daily motions is simply a reflection. It simply reflects the fact that I am an observer. We have a useful little observer here, our miniature mascot Marvin, the Martian. We're going to put him on Earth for a second. As the Earth rotates, of course, when you, you all get to be stars now, you're in the positions of the stars. As the Earth rotates around towards the east, eventually Marvin comes over the horizon, can see the stars and then rotates away, and you set, but you set to, to the west. So it's moving towards the east. So difficult choreography here. We'll sit, sit Marvin down. <clears throat> sit him down here in the middle of the United States. Objects will appear to rise in the east. Notice that Marvin is facing, in this case, the direction of rising objects, therefore facing the east coast of the US on the globe. And as the rotation goes around, eventually you all set, and you set to the west. Marvin's backside is facing towards the western part of the United States. Any observer at a different location on the Earth is going to see a slightly different half of the sky. And as they go around, the apparent path of objects followed as my observer goes from one latitude to another is going to change as we appear on the sky. That's why we spent so much time yesterday talking about where am I on the Earth? What is my latitude and longitude? Because that determines in part what fraction of the sky you see depends upon what time of day it is and where you are on the Earth where you're making your observation. We'll say a little about these apparent paths. What are they? Well, if you watch the path, if you could imagine chalking out behind a star, tracing its path across the sky so it makes an arc across the sky, what I'm going to find is that apparent path is actually going to be parallel to the celestial equator. Now, the orientation of that parallel path is going to depend, again, upon your latitude. So there's two parts of this. The first part is, it shouldn't be surprising that the motion is parallel to the celestial equator, 
because the celestial equator is perpendicular to the rotation axis. And the rotation axis celestial equator is simply the projection of the Earth's equator onto the sky. As I go from one place to another on the Earth, depending upon my latitude, which angle I'm going to make with respect to the background stars depends upon where I'm sitting. So for example, if I'm sitting down here like Marvin is on the Earth's equator and the Earth rotates around, you can see that objects are always going to be, the motion is always perpendicular to Marvin's horizon. So objects will appear to rise straight up out of the ground in the east and set straight back down in the west. If I'm up here at a, at a high latitude, like I'm at about 45 degrees north latitude, so halfway between equator and pole, as I rotate around, it's going to be an angled path because Marvin's horizon is now making a 45 degree angle with respect to the rotation of the Earth. And so I get an angled path. And then if Marvin happens to be sitting right on the South Pole, he's rotating around like this, Marvin's horizon is exactly parallel to the celestial equator at the pole. And so the stars will neither rise nor set. They'll simply go round and around and around, apparently circling directly overhead because the rotation axis of the Earth is at the zenith. It's pointing up through Marvin's funny helmet here. So the apparent path that we see has two parts. The first part is that it's going to be parallel to the celestial equator. But now what you see from where you are on the Earth, what the angle of that path is relative to your horizon, depends upon your latitude. So for example, Columbus, Ohio, is at latitude 40 degrees north. In fact, we're almost exactly at 40 north right here in this room. And what I expect to see is the paths will be tilted by 50 degrees from the horizon. That's 90 degrees minus my latitude. Okay, So orienting ourselves, east is that way as it turns out in this room. North, south, east, and west. So we'll face south. South is easy. The north celestial pole is behind me. The celestial equator will rise 50 degrees off the horizon towards the south. So what I notice is as the Earth rotates towards the east, I will see objects appear over my eastern horizon, appear to follow a tilted path, reach a maximum height above the southern horizon, and then descend down into the west. So I can kind of trace out. If I take, remember, the north celestial pole is my latitude above the ground. That's, I practice this a little bit. This is 40 degrees. The celestial equator is 90 degrees. That's close enough to 90 degrees for government work. The Earth appears to rotate from east to west around my celestial equator. So I expect that objects will rise in the east, come to a maximum height, and set in the west every single day. And the paths will be tilted by that angle. Here's an illustration of that photographically. Obviously, this has to play out. The rise and set plays out over around 12 hours, so it's kind of slow. Here's a, a beautiful photograph. It actually comes from um, Harvard um, professor Steven Pinker, who's written some very famous books about the study of consciousness and other things. He has some very beautiful pictures on his website, and one of them is this picture taken, I wonder where. Well, here's the horizon. Well, as close to the horizon as we're going to get, given this is out near Lake Louise, in fact, in Canada. Here's a path of a star relatively close to the celestial equator. This is a wide enough field. You can see as you move towards the north here, it's starting to get a little bit more distorted. 
This angle between the apparent path here shown in this time exposure photograph is 38 and a half degrees. So where was this photograph taken? At latitude 90 degrees minus this tilt angle, 38 and a half degrees, at latitude 51.5 degrees north. That is exactly the latitude, you can look it up in Google Earth if you don't believe me, of Lake Louise next to Banff National Park up in Canada. So if this photograph was taken here from a latitude of 51 degrees, all of the stars as they intersect the horizon follow these parallel paths, which are tilted by the latitude of the site, 51 degrees north, minus 90 degrees. So if you were to watch, oh say, the way in which objects, the angle at which objects rise above your eastern horizon and set in the west, and measure that angle, you've just measured your latitude. Now you haven't quite broken the symmetry north, south, east, or west, because you're going to need north or south, I'm sorry, north, south, east, or west. You haven't broken whether it's northern latitude or southern latitude yet, because you're going to need a little extra information. And you need to be able to have some way to tell I'm in the northern hemisphere versus southern hemisphere. So what this means is that as I go up in latitude, how the sky, how the celestial sphere projects onto my hemisphere tilts. So for example, if we're at the equator, the zenith is straight up, passes through the celestial equator, this red band here on the celestial sphere. The north celestial pole is actually exactly along the ground towards the north compass point. And I've just for clarity, I've left it off, but the south celestial pole would point due south. If I go to an intermediate latitude, here's 40 degrees north latitude for Columbus. The north celestial pole is now 45 degrees north above in altitude above my north compass point. And the celestial equator is tilted by an angle of 50 degrees, 90 degrees minus 40 above the horizon. Fortunately, the perspective here doesn't quite make it look like 40 and 50. If I'm standing at the North Pole, my zenith, the straight overhead point, is, well, if I'm standing right at the pole, the pole's going right up through my body and pointing straight up at the North Celestial Pole. Right-hand rule, that means I'm turning around like this. And therefore, as I look out, my horizon is exactly coincident with the celestial equator. And so I only see the half of the sky that is north of the celestial equator. The part that's south of it is always below my feet. Well, that's a lot of words. Got a few little animations here that can illustrate these. So let's first of all go to the equator. And we're going to use these animations that come out of the Starry Night program to speed up time a bit. Here's the moon as a reference. Here's, of course, a couple of bright stars. The horizon runs along the horizontal axis here. As we set it into motion, at the equator, the north and south celestial poles are exactly on my horizon. And so stars appear to rise straight up out of the east, up and over, and sink down into the west. So if I'm on the equator, everything rises exactly 90 degrees off its horizon, circles above, and sets 90 degrees smack down into the west. Okay, so that's the view from the equator. For example, this is what you would see on a clear night over the course of about in this case, these animations run from about sunset up to about 2 or 3 in the morning. This is what you would see from Quito, Ecuador, which is actually just about right on top of the equator. If instead you were to go to 40 degrees north latitude, i.e. if you were to walk outside in Columbus, Ohio on a clear night, exactly the same night as I've shown you before now. So the first animation was, actually this, is, this was a calculation done for uh, the 9th of, 9th of January 2001. No, I don't want to make office better. Thank you very much. Bill Gates makes more enough money as is. And I'll set this into 
Motion. Thank you very much. Okay. Now you can see the paths are rising in the east, but they're rising at an angle of 50 degrees. And then they'll come overhead and the moon will set in the west. So at 40 degrees north latitude, the paths are now all tilted. And notice they're all going parallel to the celestial equator. The celestial equator is running right through there, through my east compass point. So at intermediate latitudes, they're tilted paths. At the equator, they're straight up out of the ground. The weirdest place on Earth is exactly on the poles. Now, I'm going to do the North Pole here, just because I can. Well, we could also do this from the South Pole. I've had colleagues, a friend of mine from graduate school, was one of the first women to spend the winter over at the South Pole Station, and it is, in fact, this weird. The sun and the moon and the stars appear to go round and around the sky while they're above your horizon, and they just simply don't set. Oops. You can see the stars are just moving parallel. They're just moving from left to right on this screen, which is aligned with the horizon. And in fact, that's what you'd see. Over the course of the long six-month polar night, when it's full moon, the moon doesn't rise or set. If the moon is above the horizon from the South Pole, it just, well, let's see, we're South Pole, so we've got to get the opposite sense of rotation. It just goes round and around and around and never sets. It's a really weird place. So how you see these paths, they're all reflecting exactly the same motions. They're all reflecting the rotation of the Earth towards the east. But because your perspective is only that half of the sky that's above your horizon, that tilts with respect to where you are on the Earth. So where you observe from is as important as when you observe. Well, there's a certain place, however, the certain stars are going to be special places on the sky. It turns out if the stars are closer to your pole, so if you're in the northern hemisphere, it's the northern celestial pole, if you're in the southern hemisphere, like we go down to Chile or Australia, it's in the south celestial pole, then you would have that pole above the horizon. If the stars are closer to that pole than your latitude in angle, then they never, when they're at their furthest below the pole, they, never, they don't reach the horizon. So they always stay above the horizon circling endlessly. So if the stars are closer to your visible pole than your latitude, those stars neither rise nor set. They always stay above the horizon. In principle, they're always visible. You can't see them in the daytime because of sunlight, but if the sunlight was not there or the atmosphere was gone to get rid of scattering, you'd see the stars just circling round and around. Because these things appear to circle the pole, because of the daily rotation of the Earth, they are called the circumpolar stars. And constellations made up of these stars are referred to as the circumpolar constellations. For example, from the latitude of Columbus, Ohio, at 40 degrees north, that means any star which is 40 within 40 degrees of the north celestial pole will neither rise nor set, as seen from the position of Columbus, but will always be visible at night. So, for example, that includes the, the constellations of Ursa Major, the Big Dipper, Ursa Minor, the Little Dipper, Draco the Dragon, and so forth. These are the three brightest of the circumpolar constellations. Now, the opposite pole... So if I'm up in the north and I've got my north celestial pole 40 degrees above my north horizon, then because the pole is a straight line, that means the south celestial pole is 40 degrees below my southern horizon. I never see the southern pole from, the, from northern latitudes of Columbus. This means that any stars that are within 40 degrees of the southern pole just go round and around I never see them. They never get above the horizon. They would have to be sufficiently far away from the pole, more southern pole, 
40 de- more than 40 degrees away from the pole for them to just peak over the southern horizon. So in addition to having the circumpolar stars that I can always see, there is a similar selection of anti-circumpolar stars which are invisible from my latitude. So for example, as I move further south, as I cross the equator and head down into South America, eventually the Big Dipper sinks deep lower and lower and lower towards the southern horizon. No, I'm sorry, northern horizon. So when I'm standing on the equator, the north celestial pole is exactly on my northern horizon, and the Big Dipper will only be visible when it's in that half of the sky that's above the horizon. As I move further south, the north celestial pole gets further and further below my horizon. Eventually, it gets far enough below the horizon that the stars of the Big Dipper never make it above my local horizon. And that turns out to happen for latitudes south of 40 degrees south. Remember, a couple of years ago, um, in February, I was down in South America at the observatories in Chile. The Chilean observatories are at 30 degrees south latitude at a place called Cerro Tololo. It turns out that I was there in March, and that was the time of year when I could just see the Big Dipper rising above the northern horizon there. And it was really kind of cool to see the Big Dipper from 30 degrees southern latitude. At the end of my observing run, the people I was with, we went on a little backpacking trip down to Chilean Patagonia, down on the Straits of Magellan. That was at a latitude of 54 degrees south. Now, we didn't have that clear weather on the Straits of Magellan. It never seems to be clear on the Straits of Magellan, but there was one clear night. We had no hope whatsoever of seeing the Big Dipper. You simply couldn't see it because we were 14 degrees of latitude further south than the very last star that makes it over the horizon. So anyone who grew up or any culture that came up growing up below about 40 degrees south latitude has never, ever seen the Big Dipper. Similarly, there are comparable group of constellations in the south, like the Southern Cross, that we in the northern hemisphere will never see. We have to travel to Australia and Chile to see them. So these are the circumpolar stars. So this idea of things rising and setting can be illustrated with a picture here. Here's 45 degrees north latitude. So my northern celestial pole is 45 degrees above my northern compass position. Seen it straight up. Celestial equator comes up along this line here. The celestial equator is half above my horizon, half below. And so for stars rising in the east and setting in the west that are exactly on the celestial equator, um, rising on the celestial equator will spend exactly 12 hours above the horizon because it takes the Earth 24 hours exactly to go once around its axis. So a star at exactly zero declination would rise in the east, take six hours to reach its highest point, and then six hours later it would set in the west, no matter what my latitude is in the middle latitudes here. The, the, ex- the exception is always the pole. Okay. If I was at a somewhat northerly declination for the object, here an object here, say, up about a declination of about 30 degrees, so a third of the way towards the north celestial pole from the celestial equator, that object, because of the circle it follows, it goes once around its blue circle here every 24 hours. But it's above, it rises above not the due east, but above the northeastern horizon, probably takes about nine hours, in this case, the circle I've drawn, to reach the maximum point here in the sky, and then another nine hours later finally sinks below the northwestern horizon. So stars that are north of the celestial equator are above the horizon for more than 12 hours. Similarly, let's take a star at minus 30 degrees declination. 
Well, only a small part of the circle of the apparent daily motion of that star is going to be above the line of my horizon. So the, uh, the star down here at minus 30 will rise in the southeast, barely come above the horizon, and then set in the southwest. Well, this may be only six hours total above the horizon. It spends the other 18 hours of the total of 24 below my horizon. So you can see as I go further and further from the celestial equator towards the south, my maximum point eventually reaches the point that I never come above the horizon at all. In the north, if I'm closer to the pole than my um, latitude, then this star will simply go round and around. Its circle of parallel declination never sinks below my horizon. So it goes around in 24 hours. It never rises or sets. It just then tools around in front of the North Celestial Pole. The opposite stars down here never rise. They're never as far north as they are far as the closest they get to my horizon might be say, 20 or 30 degrees, they're still below it. So I only see a, sm a certain portion of the sky over the course of a night. There's one portion of the sky called the circumpolar zone, where I see all the stars all the time, and then there's the anti-circumpolar zone, where I never see any stars ever. So this is the parent daily pass and how it depends upon latitude. If I picked a different latitude, I would simply take that whole system, as we saw in the movie, just crank it in different ways. There are, two sp there are three special locations on the Earth. If you're at the North Pole or the South Pole, you see only those stars which are either all in the North for the North Pole or all in the South for the South Pole. You never see the opposite hemisphere stars ever, and the stars are all circumpolar that are above your head. So that half of the sky is always circumpolar. The equator is the most special place on the Earth because you actually see all of the stars over the course of a night or over the course of a single day because the poles are exactly on your horizon and so there are no circumpolar stars. Everything rises in the east and sets in the west on the equator. But in between, you get these zones of exclusion and zones of always up. I kind of belabored that a little bit, but it's, a, it's kind of an important way of looking at the sky. So here's an example of these circumpolar stars. It's just a quick little movie here, usually quick. So we're looking at Polaris, which is very close to the North Celestial Pole. We're facing north from the latitude of Columbus, Ohio. And if we set this guy in motion, come on. Hello, quick time. You can see the stars just simply appear to move round and around and around. And these stars just skirt the horizon, but never quite set. And these stars up here, of course, are always high above the sky. So it's a way of speeding up what would take many hours, but if you watch carefully, this is in fact what the sky does. The sky appears to be turning around these poles. And it appears to be turning in such a direction that objects tend to rise from the east and set towards the west. And if I took a time exposure photograph that makes that circular motion, this bright part is Polaris exactly right here, shows you an interesting fact. Polaris, even though we call it the pole star, is in fact a little over at one degree from that pole. This is a beautiful time exposure photograph taken by Dave Malin in the northern hemisphere. Okay, so that's the daily motions, the motions which reflect the rising, of the, rising, rising and setting of objects due to the rotation of the Earth. 
the Earth is rotating on its axis, and we see the reflection of that motion in the motions of the sky. The second piece of motion is in addition to the Earth rotating on its axis, the Earth is also orbiting around the Sun. And it orbits around the Sun on an orbit that takes it around, slightly elliptical, over the course of one year, about 365 and a quarter days. The result of this is as, as the Earth is rotating, over the, as it tries to go from, as it, we've been standing here talking about rotation, just rotation in place. But what's really happening is in addition to rotating in a right-hand sense, we're also simultaneously moving in a right-hand sense. Now I'm exaggerating that a little bit just so you can see it as we move across here. So what this means is, is that if I look at something like the stars, each day when I look at the sun and say, what stars would the sun appear against if I could see those stars? you would see that the sun is actually slowly drifting eastward across the celestial sphere each day with respect to the stars. How much? Well, it's pretty easy to figure it out. There are 360 degrees in a circle and 365 days in a year. So 360 degrees divided by 365 is a little less than one degree per day. The sun is a half a degree across, so it basically moves twice its diameter with respect to the stars towards the east. So if I saw it see the sun rise in the east and set in the west, if I took a snapshot of it relative to the stars, what I would see is the sun has actually moved a little bit eastward relative to the stars. It takes a little bit longer to get back into place up at noon. This apparent motion, again, is not because the sun is moving around the earth, although that is the common sense way of viewing it, and it is the way we've probably actually viewed it for most of human history, is simply a reflection of the fact that the Earth is, has an annual orbit around the Sun. We are on a moving planet. We are watching the Sun move relative to the distant background stars from the perspective of the Earth moving. Now, if I watch this one, a little less than one degree of eastward motion against the stars now each day, eventually, after one year, that path is going to close upon itself. That apparent path will be a great circle projected upon the celestial sphere. And it turns out that it's not exactly in the equator. The path of the sun is tilted by approximately 23 and a half degrees relative to the celestial equator. This tilt has a special name. It's called the obliquity of the ecliptic. The ecliptic, the pa apparent path of the sun across the sky, is oblique. It's actually tilted with respect to the equator, the celestial equator. And that amount of tilt is about 23 and a half degrees. This tilt is not constant, okay? It varies between about 22.1 and 24 and a half degrees, but on an extremely long time scale. It goes down to 21.1, up to 24 and a half, and back down in 41,000 years. So it's a very, very slow motion. Right now, as of today, I did the calculation. The exact value of the obliquity of the ecliptic is 23 degrees, 26 minutes, 17.826 seconds of arc. In 2000, it was 23 degrees, 26 minutes, but 21.448 seconds of arc. It's a really small motion. Over seven years, it's really barely moved about four sec three and a half seconds of arc. But if you accumulate over centuries, it does mean that the, the ecliptic is slowly but surely wobbling back and forth. So this obliquity is not a hard and fast number. It actually does depend upon when we are in this 41,000-year cycle. 
<coughs> so here's the celestial sphere. North celestial pole, Earth at the center. Celestial equator projected up onto the sphere. The ecliptic will be tilted. I mean, it is this green circle tilted by 23 and a half, in round numbers, 23 and a half degrees. That's the subliquity of the ecliptic. So sometimes the sun is exactly on the celestial equator at two points here. Sometimes the sun is on the ecliptic and sometimes above, as far north above the, it's always on the ecliptic. Sometimes the sun is north of the celestial equator by as much as 23 and a half degrees at its maximum north. And then at the other extreme is 23 and a half degrees south of the celestial equator. So the sun appears in different parts of the sky at different angles above the horizon over different times of the year as it begins its eastward. And again, one another direction. Put your thumb up in the direction of the north celestial pole. Oh, take, your, sorry, take your right hand. North, thumb in the direction of the north celestial pole. Curve your fingers along the ecliptic. That's the direction of the sun's apparent motion eastward. So as drawn here, it starts out on the celestial equator in the foreground, rises to maximum north, 23 and a half degrees north of the equator, sets, it gets down back to the celestial equator, and then heads down south to the maximum southern. It takes one whole year for it to cross over this. Of course, at each position, it's busy rising in the east and setting in the west because the Earth is rotating once a day as the whole, whole thing is moving off to the east. So the actual motion we're seeing is a compound motion composed of rise in the east, set in the west due to the daily rotation, and then there's the slight eastward slip because the Earth itself is in motion. I know this kind of gets to be astronomy as interpretive dance sometimes, but it is making me dizzy. All right, so slow down here. The ecliptic crosses against the background of stars. The ancients knew this, of course. Anyone who studied the sky for more than a year or so saw that the sun was in a slightly different spot. Of course, you've got to think about it a second. Well, how could they know? Because you walk out on a sunny day, the one thing you don't see is the stars. You see our star, the sun, but that's it. So how do you tell? Well, what's the opposite side of noon? It's midnight. So I wait 12 hours and say, what constellation is exactly on my southern compass point exactly at midnight? That's where the sun will be in six months. So you actually have to back out which constellation the sun is against now by looking at which constellation midnight would be against that night and say, oh, well, six months from now, that's where the sun's going to be. And over the course of the year, you've just sketched out the ecliptic. It's very straightforward to do. By making this familiar, people put the names on 12 of the constellations. Why 12? because approximately 12 lunar months in a year. So the, the ecliptic was divided up into 12 ancient constellations, many of which have the names of animals, in Greek, zoos, so therefore it's called the zodiac. A lot of these things actually date from Babylonian times. There certainly was a lot of borrowing along the Mediterranean world. All of these should be familiar from astrological lore, because in fact, the systems of astrology you see in the newspapers is basically an ancient version of where is the sun against the constellations, just updated into New Age nonsense. <coughs> we can use, therefore, where the sun is against the stars as an astronomical ca uh, calendar. Okay? But again, because we can't see the sun, the stars during the daytime, we use, it, we use the calendar backwards. We say, where is the sun going to be in six months, i.e., which zodiacal constellation, if I face south, 
wait until it's midnight and say, which constellation of the zodiac is exactly on my north-south meridian line at that instant, that tells me what time of the year it is. And then I simply turn it around 180 degrees and boom, there's the sun. The sun being in the opposite constellation. Therefore, we have a calendar in the sky. Okay, here's an example of this. Now we're going to bust this out. Here are the familiar, to hopefully familiar, 12 constellations of the zodiac. In March of this year, the sun was in the constellation of Pisces as seen from the Earth. So here's the Earth. Noon is this yellow arrow pointing through the sun. So the sun would have been against the constellation of Pisces. I wait until midnight, and at midnight, the constellation of Virgo will be due south. If I go three months later, in June of 2007, the sun has now moved around. Remember, we're moving in a right-hand sense around our orbit. The sun is now in the constellation of Gemini, and at midnight, the constellation of Sagittarius is high in the south. September, right about now, in fact, the special time for September was this weekend, the so-called equinox. The sun is now in Virgo, and now midnight is Pisces, but six months before, those were exactly reversed. And finally, in December, towards the end of this class, the Earth will have moved another quarter of the way around its circle, that's why we call them quarters, and the sun will be in Sagittarius, and the constellation of Gemini, I've drawn it kind of funny here, the constellation of Gemini, will actually be up in the sky at midnight. It's a celestial calendar. Yes? I have questions, maybe kind of dumb. Are there other stars like, around the constellations that make them look like what they're like? Would they sort of recall? Uh, yes, actually, the, the, the figure of these constellations don't look exactly... I mean, that Scorpius looks kind of like a scorpion there. Capricorn, that's a goat. Yep, I believe that. That's a water bearer? Sure. There's a pair of fish on a string. Uh, Taurus the bull looks more like a Gemini. There's the twins. You can actually see the twins there. And Leo the lion, there's the nose of the lion and the long tail. Uh, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. So yeah, it's a good question. Here's how we can use this calendar. We saw this picture last week. This is, this is the old sacristy in San Lorenzo Church in Florence, Italy. It was Brunelleschi's little dome in there. It was painted in the year 1422. Now, I mentioned that this is a fairly good depiction of the sky. There's the sun, and you can see the zodiacal constellations. Here's a zoom-up of that. It shows the sun between the constellations of Gemini and Cancer. We can show that this is not just a random picture of the sky. This is a depiction of the sky at least in early July of some year. So it isn't just an artist's representation. The artist was saying the sky above Florence in early July. As we go on in the class, we're going to come back to this as we see more fine-grained ways of telling time. We look at the planets and else. Not only can I tell you the, tell you the m approximate month, we've actually been able to pin down the day and the year. So it's a calendar. All right. Now the solstices, when the sun is at its maximum northern or southern declination, we say the sun is at one of its solstices. The word solstice comes from the Latin sol sistit. Sol means the sun. Sistit means to stand. Now, the sun doesn't actually stop, but what does stop is the sun stops its northerly or southerly motion day to day because it's reached its maximum northern or maximum southern dip along the ecliptic. So the sun has stopped its vertical motion north-south for that one day. When we say the sun has stood, it's at a solstice. This happens twice a year. 
In summertime, we are at the point of no maximum northern declination, as far north as the sun ever gets from the celestial equator upon the ecliptic. And in the winter solstice occurs when we are at maximum southern declination. Now, this summer-winter business, of course, is a shameless bit of northern hemisphere um, bias because in the southern hemisphere, the seasons would be exactly opposite, as we'll see tomorrow. Here's a picture. Again, the circle of the ecliptic, the celestial equator. When the sun is at its maximum northern declination, it's the summer solstice. Maximum southern declination, winter solstice. So those are the two solstices to find two well-defined points in the celestial equator. The equinoxes are when the sun crosses the celestial equator, either heading north or south. The vernal or spring equinox occurs when the sun crosses the celestial equator on its way northward towards the summer solstice. The autumnal equinox, which just last occurred on Sunday morning, occurs when the sun crosses the celestial equator heading southward. So a lot of words, let's go to the picture. The sun has a eastward motion along the ecliptic. Vernal equinox when it's heading towards the north, down when it's heading towards the south. To just close the loop a wee little bit, remember we haven't talked about celestial longitude. How do we set a prime meridian? There's how we set the prime meridian. The vernal equinox is the prime meridian in the sky. It's the place where the sun crosses the celestial equator. That's how we set celestial longitude. We're not going to talk about that in this class because we don't need it. So, they're right here. So this now is the configuration of the sky. As the sun moves throughout the year, it appears to follow this annual path called the ecliptic. It's tilted by 23 and a half degrees, and it's a slow eastward, one degree slide per day, maximum in the southern, summer, minimum southern in the winter, and exactly on the equator at the vernal equinox and the autumnal equinox. Those names all are evocative of things. They're evocative of the seasons. They're evocative of the length of the day. And we'll pick that topic up tomorrow.